0: Hello, everyone good evening nice to see you all how's everyone doing good well uh, why don't you go ahead and open your Bible with me to mark chapter 12 again verses 1 to 27 we're gonna have a look at those verses together and as you as you do open your Bibles I want you to imagine that you were trying to choose a passage from the scriptures to introduce somebody to Jesus you they didn't know anything about Jesus they weren't a believer Or maybe you're even here tonight or watching online and and you are curious about Jesus, but you don't know much about him. This would actually be a really interesting choice to introduce somebody to Jesus using this passage. I I don't know if I've ever done that before, but have you ever met anybody who is as clever as this? You bring him a theological riddle, he has an answer for you. You bring him a political riddle, he has an answer for you. And he seems to speak as somebody unlike anybody that's ever lived. And so as we turn to, uh, turn to Mark's Gospel tonight, the theme is authority, Jesus' authority. Where does it come from and what's it for? And I want, I want to remind you of where we've come to in the Gospel, so if you haven't been with us before uh, or you've forgotten what we did last week, I want you to remember last week, Jesus entered Jerusalem in dramatic fashion. He was riding on a donkey. There was lots of people singing, Hosanna, blessed uh, is the coming kingdom of our father David. And there was palm branches it was a big parade and uh, and and jesus who had been hiding his identity from from the crowds as messiah and king well now there was nothing being hidden it was all revealed and he wasn't silencing the crowd he wasn't silencing bartimaeus when he was sing- calling out son of david have mercy on me it was like jesus was ready for his coronation <laughs> but he didn't go straight to the temple and uh, to be crowned or to be put on a throne did he he did some very strange things instead. He went into the temple, and he busted it up. He, uh, he, he, he spoke with strong words and strong actions, and he kicked over some tables. And uh, he was driving out this, all this corruption and false religion. And that led those in power, the, uh, the chief priests, the scribes, the, the Pharisees, the elders to demand of him by what authority are you doing these things who gave you that authority that's their question and jesus counter question made it clear that his authority came from god in heaven he's the king he's the lord but then we come to chapter 12 and I don't know if you're surprised by how these religious leaders are, are responding, but certainly they're not just refusing to acknowledge Jesus' authority, they're actually rebelling against him openly. They're trying to catch him out. They're opposing him, looking for an opportunity to arrest him, verse 12 says, seeking to entrap him with a series of riddles and tough questions. Now for you and I, maybe authority is a bit of a dirty word. I mean, there's certainly a lot of abuses of authority out there, isn't there? Authoritarian governments turn into dictatorships. Authoritative bosses can turn into bullies in the workplace. Even Jesus himself, when James and John came to him and they wanted a little bit more authority than the other disciples, he said, no, I'm not having any of that. If you want to follow after me, you're not going to lord it over others. Instead, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, he said. And you and I, we we chafe against authority too all the time. We rebel against it. But let me tell you, it's impossible for you and I to live without some sort of authority. So either either, uh, God's in charge, or some other person's in charge, or maybe best of all, this is usually my preference, I'm in charge. So years ago I was driving, and uh, I saw my destination on the left, and I saw that I I could take a left turn and make a shortcut to get there faster. But it it meant going the wrong way down a one-way street. So I made a left turn, and I started going down the one-way street the wrong direction, and suddenly someone started waving at me and telling me to turn around and go back, and I ignored him. And then he turned on his blue and red flashing lights (laughs) and uh, started waving at me to go to the side of the road, and I didn't ignore him anymore. Well, in the same way, Jesus' authority, which had been hidden for so long in Mark's Gospel, well, now it's on full display. He's no longer an undercover cop he's in full uniform now so how are you going to respond to him tonight because the root word in english of authority the word that's hidden inside there is author isn't it it's very helpful for us in the english and and christians believe that the authority that is owed to god the father the son and the holy spirit is because god is the author and sustainer of all life Of course of course he ought to have authority if he's the author And so as jesus confronts these three powerful groups Who are standing in opposition to his authority? He points us to the source and the purpose of his authority And we can look at the we can look at these verses under three headings very simply Authority first of all belongs to the author We see that in verses 13 to 17 And then we'll look at the end of the chapter, or the end of the section that we're reading. Authority belongs to the living God in verses 18 to 27. And then we'll go back to the beginning, the first 12 verses. And we see Jesus' authority judges and saves. So let's let's start off with the authority that belongs to the author. So the first group to test Jesus' authority is the Pharisees and the Herodians. And we last saw this unholy alliance between these two groups that are usually enemies, Back in chapter 3 verse 6 mark told us the pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the herodians against jesus how to destroy him and mark warns us that they're trying to trap jesus in his talk verse 13. so their question is this is it lawful to pay taxes to caesar or not jesus is it lawful and this is why it's a trap because if jesus says yes then the jewish popular support will turn against him Because people bitterly hated the Roman occupation But if Jesus says no, it's not lawful Then they can report Jesus to the Roman authorities because it's an act of rebellion to encourage people not to pay their taxes So he's caught it's a catch-22, right? Except what does he do he reaches in his no, he doesn't reach in his pocket He says you over there reach in your pocket and show me the coin show me the denarius the Roman coin Whose likeness and inscription is on it, Jesus asks. So someone produces the coin. And, uh, and if you were to look at one of these coins, you would see that on one side, just like ours, there's two images. On one side, you would see the image of Caesar, and it says, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And then if you flipped it over, the other side bore the inscription, Pontifex Maximus, chief priest. So Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And render simply means to to give or pay back. To give or pay back. And since Caesar's image is on the coin, well, it belongs to Caesar. It's his property. And you can give back to Caesar what belongs to him. No No one could get Jesus in trouble for sedition for saying that. But then he continues. He says, and render to God the things that are God's. So I ask you, very simply, what things are God's? What belongs to God, then? Well, let me ask the question a different way. Where do we see God's image and likeness in creation? You held up a denarius, you see Caesar's image and likeness. What could you hold up that would have the image and likeness of God? Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him male and female he created them we are coins in god's mint and so we belong entirely to him we have we bear his image and likeness he is our author and therefore he has all authority over us in fact even as jesus is cleverly getting around their trick he's also subtly undermining all of caesar's authority because to give back to god What is his actually means to give him back everything because everything is his even what belongs to caesar So friends as followers of jesus We do our best to submit and respect those put in authority over us Whether the government or our employers or our teachers However, this submission cannot allow us to act immorally or to disobey God's commandments, or to go against our Christian conscience. In other words, we render to God what is God's first and foremost. And in doing so, I declare, I'm not in authority. Jesus is Lord. Jude 1, verse 25 says, To the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time, now and forever. That's what the early church proclaimed. So firstly, then, authority belongs to the author. And secondly, authority belongs to the living God. And here we look at verses 18 to 27, the debate between Jesus and the Sadducees. So who are these, who are these Sadducees? This is the first time we've seen them in Mark's Gospel. They're, they're Jews, and they are, they are from upper-class families. So they are uh, rich, and they're worldly. We would call them theological liberals. So, for example, they did not believe in angels. They did not believe in the supernatural. They did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And they bring a riddle to Jesus that's designed to make him look foolish. So, Jesus, one woman ends up marrying seven brothers during her life. Whose wife will she be in the resurrection, Jesus? You can just kind of hear the, the snark to it, right? And in verse 24, Jesus responds this way. Jesus said to them, "'Is this not the reason you are wrong?' That's damning. "'Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God.'" And so Jesus points to two pieces of evidence. First of all, God's word, and then God's power. He reminds them of God's words all the way back in Exodus 3, verse 6. "'I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I am, not I was, present tense, I still am. Now abraham and isaac and jacob were patriarchs of israel long long ago even a long time before uh, before jesus lifetime so if they are nothing more than dust in the ground then god can't right now at this moment be their god can he but he's not the god of the dead he's the god of the living you are quite wrong jesus says in fact what he's saying is these patriarchs aren't right now with their author and creator as we speak just as moses was speaking with jesus at his transfiguration authority belongs to the living god so when we rebel against god's authority we rebel against both god's words and god's power and we see jesus elaborating on god's resurrection power in verse 25 He says, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And I don't know about you, but I have so many questions about this verse. I just want Jesus to, please, Jesus, say more. (laughs) Tell me more about what you're talking about here. What do you mean there's not going to be marriage in heaven? Well, certainly Jesus is undercutting any sort of crude or materialistic idea that we might have about the resurrection. So he says, somehow the risen are like angels, and they're, they're like angels in at least two senses. Firstly, that they're immortal, and secondly, that uh, they no longer bear children. Immortality, and there's no, need for, there's no need for procreation. So that in that sense, the resurrection body is like an angelic body. Beyond that, we don't know what it could mean. But in 1 corinthians 15 paul adds that our resurrection bodies will be of a different kind than the ones that we have now in the Fallen world and that different kind will be perfected It will be like jesus resurrection body it will be perfect But that doesn't answer the question of marriage. Why is there no marriage Jesus? Well, all I can really say about it from what we have here is that there's no longer a need for marriage because love will be fulfilled because love will actually be increased not diminished not not reduced so in other words we won't miss any intimacy that we would have we won't miss intimacy or love with any one individual like our spouse or our best friend because we will be more loved and more loving than ever before In one sense, you could almost say that there won't be any special, intimate relationship that you have with one person, because when you really think about it, that kind of intimacy always involves some level of exclusion, doesn't it? It has to. A marriage covenant is between one man and one woman, and necessarily not between anyone else on the planet. Well, there's no need for that in heaven, because there isn't uh, any place for that kind of exclusion. All love will be uh, inclusive, if you want to say it that way. SO BEYOND THAT, IT'S A GREAT MYSTERY. WE CAN'T SAY MORE THAN THAT. BUT incidentally, THIS ALSO MEANS THAT FOR THOSE WHO ARE SINGLE, OR FOR THOSE WHO HAVE ENDURED LOVELESS OR DIFFICULT MARRIAGES, THERE IS NO LOSS OR DIMINISHMENT FOR YOU IN THE RESURRECTION. YOU SEE, GOD'S AUTHORITY GRANTS ETERNAL LIFE AND ETERNAL LOVE, PERFECT LOVE, TO THOSE WHO ARE IN CHRIST JESUS. Far more perfect than anything that you could ever experience in a marriage or a friendship here. Because authority belongs to the living God, and nothing can prevent him from his salvation plan. Which brings us to our third heading, Jesus' authority judges and saves. We go back to the beginning, to the parable in verses 1 to 12. So, in response to the the Pharisees and the religious leaders' hard-heartedness, what does Jesus do first? Well, he tells them a story. He tells them this parable about a vineyard and a farmer, farmers, who rent from him. And many of the elements of this parable would have been familiar to Jesus' Jewish audience, but probably for most of us when you when you hear it, you're, you're like, I have no idea what, what what's going on here. What's the deal with the vineyard and who, who do all these people represent? So let's see if we can begin by just unpacking what Jesus Was implying or what these different characters and places in the story represent so very simply the man who planted the vineyard represents god god the father and the vineyard itself represents israel and then what about the tenants the ones that he leases it to well they represent the religious leaders of israel are you with me so far so then when we read in verse 2 the season came and he the, the the vineyard owner sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard well what is this fruit of the vineyard it's the fruitful good works blessing that the nation of israel was meant to be to one another and to the world that's the fruit of the vineyard and the 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 vineyard owner sends servants well what do the servants represent they represent the old testament prophets do you remember If you read through the Old Testament, you see prophet, time after time, they come to the people of Israel, and some of them get beat up, and some of them get killed, just like these servants. I want us to pause there for a moment. I want you to imagine that you're a property owner. Maybe you're owning an apartment and you want to rent it out. I know that's hard to imagine for some of you, that you could ever own property in Vancouver. but You have an apartment, and your tenant refuses to pay rent, just like Will's story with Lorna. And, uh, and then you send the property manager to talk to them, and they beat him up. <laughs> so what would you do next? Well, you'd probably call the police, right? Anyway, you'd send in reinforcements. You'd send in muscle to evict your lousy tenants. That's what you're expecting as you're reading this story. So now picture God as the landlord, the vineyard owner. What's he going to do with Israel after they've mistreated him? Well, Martin Luther knew what he would do if he was God. So this is what Martin Luther would do. If I were God, and the whole world treated me as it treated him, I would kick the wretched thing to pieces. Maybe that's how you're feeling, you would do that too. But we thank God that that, that Martin Luther isn't God, because instead we get the first surprise of the parable in verse six. Here's, Here's what it says, have a look with me. He, the vineyard owner, still had one other, a beloved son. And finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. They will respect my son. Uh, Of course, the son represents Jesus, the beloved son, coming from his father in heaven without an army, without a sword, coming in the incarnation to offer forgiveness to these rebellious people. Jesus laying down his authority in the incarnation. And that word respect it says they will respect my son well it could be literally translated they will feel shame (laughs) they will feel shame in a good sense because god's desire in sending his son jesus is to lead his chosen people to repentance and submission to his loving authority again and yet jesus knew the cost of his incarnation he knew that he would Bear the cost like the beloved son. Because we've already seen him predict his death three times. He knew that he would, be suffer- he would suffer, he would be rejected, he would be killed. So we read the tragic response in verse 7. The tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Let's kill him. The inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. So when, when they say this, what they're saying is, well, when they see the heir coming, they're assuming that the, the vineyard owner is dead. That's kind of the cultural context. And so if they kill the heir, then they can take possession of the vineyard. There won't be anybody else to to own it except them. And how foolishly we think that if we turn our backs on God, if we kill him with our callousness and and our dismissal, that we can step into his shoes and assume authority over our own lives. And then we come to the next surprise in the parable. Because Jesus' audience here, they're expecting a swift and brutal response from the vineyard owner. Okay. The reason they expect this is because one of the bases for this parable is Isaiah 5 in the Old Testament. And in the Isaiah 5 version of this parable, the Lord God, what does he do? He tramples the vineyard. (laughs) He lays waste the rebellious vineyard. And... The vineyard represented Judah, and he, and actually was fulfilled. Like, the Babylonians came, and they destroyed the temple. They destroyed everything. And that's, that's what the, the listeners of Jesus' parable are expecting. They're thinking, OK, now it's time for some real judgment. And yes, in verse 9, we do get judgment. But, but it's judgment with another surprise, with another twist. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come, yes, and destroy the tenants. But surprise, he's going to give the vineyard to others. So, yes, there will be judgment for the rebellious religious leaders and all those who reject Jesus' authority. But there's also these surprising new tenets. So who are these folks? It's the church. It's us. This is the final surprise of the parable. Vindication for Jesus and the church. Verse 10 and 11. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and this was the lord's doing it's marvelous in our eyes the seeming tragedy that awaits jesus in jerusalem is not an accident of history it's not beyond, beyond the power of the living god because jesus authority judges and saves and the apostle peter when he takes these words about the cornerstone about jesus and the church and they're taken from psalm 118 and he applies them in one of the first sermons in In the book of Acts, this is what Peter says. Let it be known to you and to all people of Israel that by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is vindication. This is the one with complete power and authority, willingly laying down his life for our sake. You remember Mark chapter 10, verse 45? For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But he lay it down only so that his Father, in the resurrection, could hand him back that life and hand him back the authority that he laid down. And now Jesus sits on the throne with all authority to save and to rule and to judge. So how will you respond to this parable? How will you respond to the words of Scripture tonight? Because verse 12 tells us that the religious leaders, when they heard Jesus speak this parable, they perceived that he told the parable against them. And how did they respond? Well, they plotted They plotted to assert their own authority by getting rid of him, and they killed him. So brothers and sisters, don't make the same mistake. Jesus' words are inviting us to respond in at least two very simple ways. First of all, remember that you are a renter and not an owner. Remember that you are a renter and not an owner. What a lot of gifts we can receive from the author who holds all authority. Life and breath and beauty and curiosity and adoption and regeneration and union with christ and the power of the holy spirit all of these and many other gifts are available in the name of jesus so approach the king of kings with humility knowing he's slow to judge and quick to forgive and save and secondly we respond by bearing fruit in the vineyard you're sitting in the vineyard tonight saint john's is the vineyard vancouver is the vineyard the world is god's vineyard The church has a very special role in the vineyard Commissioned with the privilege of joining the beloved son in his mission to bring many sons and daughters to glory So we bear fruit by our prayer by Making st. John's a house of prayer for the nations By rendering to God the things that are gods By sharing the hope of the resurrection with those who long for hope and by trusting Jesus' authority to judge and to save. Amen.